in this ministry's heart. So why don't you give the Lord and David a hand as he comes. Amen. Can I pray with you? I can. And then I can. You are on already? Let me see if you're on. Because I, I can't have any wimpy preaching up here this, today. <laughs> you fall asleep in the front row. <laughs> Father, we love you. Thank you, God, for the gift of David and Elaine. We thank you, Lord, for their prayers sowed into our church, their love, their compassion, God, with no thought of benefit, only to see us walk in your dream, the dream that you've deposited among us. Would you bless him today? Let his words be yours, his thoughts be yours, that we, your people, might be blessed. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you. Amen. Love you, Don. You would turn with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 1. And verses 15 to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all now Ephesians begins with four great statements God has chosen us this is Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 God has chosen us verse 5 he has predestined us Verse 7, he has forgiven us. And verse 15, he has sealed us with his spirit. Isn't it? You know, I, I was listening to a preacher recently uh, from a different branch of the faith, not charismatic. And someone had asked him, uh, how do you grow in your faith? And he said, well, you go to church, you pray, and you read your Bible. And... Of course, I endorse all of those things. But in the midst of his exhortation, never once was the Holy Spirit mentioned. You, you can't. Christianity is not moralism. Christianity is not doing this, doing that, doing the next thing. Getting up the energy to go to church. Getting up the discipline to read your Bible. Um, and to pray. Uh, if the Holy Spirit doesn't come and empower you, you're dead in the water. At least I am. Maybe you're more spiritual than me. See, so uh, it takes a load off of us. When we see it's all about what God has done. It says God has chosen us. You didn't choose Him. You, you may think you put your hand up and received Christ, and hopefully you have received Christ. 
But God chose you before you ever chose him. He has predestined us. People, I get asked all the time about predestination. And I said, well, you know what? The Bible says that you've got free will, but it says that God has more free will than you do. Well, that went down like a lead balloon. <laughs> now, look, you all of you have not got back at 2 a.m. Don can fall asleep if he wants to, but the rest of you can't. He has forgiven us. He has sealed us with His Spirit. He's given us His Holy Spirit. He's done all those things. Ephesians begins with those four great statements. These things are the foundation of Christian faith. Your faith, my faith. And foundations are critical. Firm foundations. That's what we're saying in this morning. Foundations are critical. But they need to be built on, don't they? Uh, you, you, you have to have a good foundation to build a house on. But if all you have is the foundation, you haven't got a house so all some people see of their Christian life is how their need for salvation has been met. That's, you know, he's chosen you, he's predestined you, he's forgiven you, he's given you his Holy Spirit. That's your salvation. That's your foundation. But if that's all you see, if, if what you're in Christianity for is for your salvation to be given to you, you haven't got the point. It's not all about what God can do for you. It's, it may all be all about what God has done for you, but it's not all about what God can do for you in the sense of all the things He can give you. It's about out of, the, out of gratitude for all that God has done for me, what am I going to give back to God? If all you understand about Christianity is that you've been saved, then you bought a, a package of fire insurance. You're not going to hell. But you see, your world is still centered on you. But if you understand the cross, it means your life is not about you anymore. Your life is about the mission that Jesus is sending you on. And we never go on that mission alone. Jesus never sent anybody out alone. There was always team. There was always other people. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Paul is going to move us from the foundations in those first verses of Ephesians to something bigger than that. And so once he said that, God has chosen you, He's predestined you, He's forgiven you, He's given you His Spirit. He says, for this reason I pray. For what reason? Well, because of all these things God has done in your life, He says, I'm going to pray that God is going to build on the foundations and do something more. And so he prays first that God would give them the Spirit. How can this be you might say, when you've already been sealed with the Spirit, which is, is what he says. He says, you've been sealed with the Spirit at the beginning, but then he says, uh, I'm praying. For this reason I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. Well, to be sealed with the Spirit is to receive the Spirit when you become a Christian. 
But no matter what your past experience with the Holy Spirit, you need His presence today. You can't just rest on what the Holy Spirit has done in your life at some point in the past. I am so grateful for what the Holy Spirit has done for me. I am so grateful for the day that I understood what salvation was. I am so grateful for the day that I had a power encounter that I've shared with many of you, with the Holy Spirit that changed my life. I'm so grateful for the many times the Holy Spirit has shown up in my life in power and authority. And, and when I was at the end of my tether and couldn't do anything because I'm hopeless without God, I'm hopeless anyway, my wife will tell you. Come on, you're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to be asleep. <laughs> but when the Spirit comes... All of a sudden, we can do anything. We can do anything. We had in our church uh, in Ontario a few months ago a man called Robert Slyard, and he wrote a book about called God's Generals, and one of them was Catherine Kuhlman. And he tells the story in it of the last miracle service where she was suffering from congestive heart failure. She was in her mid-70s. And uh, her attendant that was with her uh, to watch over her and protect her was there behind the stage and she uh, he found her holding on to the stage curtain uh, in uh, physically ill and crying out to God saying Lord Jesus just one more time one more time one more time and he rushed to get a doctor and when he came back with the doctor she had gone through the curtain and ministered for four hours in the power of God and signs and wonders and miracles. And when she came back off of the stage, she collapsed. And that was the last miracle service that she ever conducted. But what was left with me was uh, her dependence on the Holy Spirit. And I remember her saying that. Another thing that she said is, if you're not called, don't do it. But if you are called, you must do it, no matter what the cost. And there is a cost to the call of God this morning. There is a cost to any of you for the call of God. But to do that, you need the Holy Spirit. Not just the Holy Spirit meeting you yesterday, but the Holy Spirit meeting you now. You can't live off yesterday's experience. Every day is a new day to welcome the Holy Spirit into your life. I think sometimes in church, maybe not in this church, but in lots of churches, we worry so much about a move of the Holy Spirit getting out of control that we refuse to allow the Holy Spirit to be in control. God will offend the mind to reach the heart. If you're offended by the moving of the Holy Spirit, then it's not the Holy Spirit's problem. It's your problem. We need more of God's control. But you know what? If God is in control, we have to release control. I learned that in another perspective this past week. God challenges me. You know, He says, you can carry this load or you can give it to me. But to give it to Him means to release things out of our control. It's a hard thing to do, isn't it? So here God says, or Paul says, God says through Paul, he says, 
talks about the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He's praying that they would receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, wisdom is the correct understanding of known facts. The best guide to known facts is this book. So the spirit of wisdom leads us into the wisdom of the Word of God. Now, why do you need, you ask, why do you need the Holy Spirit to understand the Word of God? Listen, ask an unsaved person to explain the basic truths of the Bible. They can't because they don't have the Spirit. I talked about that last week. They don't have the Holy Spirit, and so they don't understand. So if we're going to understand the Word of God, we need the Holy Spirit day to day to give us understanding because He's the Spirit of wisdom. Wisdom refers to the correct understanding of known facts. But he's not just the spirit of wisdom. He's the spirit of revelation. Revelation is not known facts. Revelation is the unveiling of facts that are hidden in God. There are many things unknown that we need the spirit to reveal. And that's why Paul talks about understanding mysteries and experiencing revelations in 1 Corinthians 13 and 14. Prophecy. The word of wisdom, the word of knowledge are forms of revelation. God gives us revelation. I've often told the story of a man who was a spiritual father to me who was in a meeting and said, you know, there's a lady here going to commit suicide. And when she didn't identify, uh, God gave him a, a word of knowledge and said, ma'am, it's, you know, the third row down, the fourth seat over, you've got a bottle of yellow pills. There's 300 of them in your purse. And she began to weep, opened her pills, her purse, there was the pills, her life was saved. That was the spirit of revelation was needed for that. You, it's the unveiling of facts that are known to God but not to us. So we need the spirit of wisdom to understand the word of God. And we need the spirit of revelation to understand things that God will speak to us that we don't know about like the young man I was witnessing to and getting absolutely nowhere with until God gave me a word of knowledge. He unveiled something that was hidden to me. And he showed me that his mother and his maternal grandmother um, had a spirit of clairvoyance. And I said, am I right in saying that your mother and your mother's mother know how to predict the future? And he looked at me like I'd hit him in the face. And he said, how'd you know that? See, that's the spirit of revelation. It's the unveiling of facts that are hidden in God. I pray, Paul says, that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And then the next phrase is, in the knowledge of him. Now, the goal of wisdom and revelation that God is giving us by his spirit is this knowledge. The word means to know God intimately. For this, we need the wisdom of the Bible and the revelation of the supernatural. And when we have the wisdom of the Bible that the Holy Spirit gives us, and when we have the revelation of the unknown and hidden that God gives us, it takes us into a deep experiential knowledge of Almighty God. It's, it, Christianity is not knowing facts about God. It's knowing God. It's not knowing facts about Jesus. 
You can know the story of the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus, but do you know Jesus? That's what Christianity is. What makes Christianity different from every other religion? Every other religion is knowing about facts. About God. But Christianity takes us beyond knowing about God to knowing God personally. The spirit of wisdom and revelation, we the spirit gives us understanding into the Bible to show us how to live. The spirit gives us revelation to show us how to walk day by day. And the goal is the spirit taking us into the knowledge of God. A head full of Bible knowledge without an encounter with the Holy Spirit will land us in a spiritual desert. On the other hand, miraculous manifestations without a knowledge of the Bible will lead to some kind of stupidity, I'll call it. But the miraculous rooted in the Bible will lead us to God. That's what we need. We need the Spirit leading us into the Word. Now, the, de the deeper knowledge of God, Paul continues, involves three things. I'll go back to, if I get my Bible right side up, I'll go back to the text. He says, I'm praying that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. That's where I've got to so far. And then he says that you may know three things, the hope of His calling, the wealth of his inheritance in the saints and the greatness of his power. So, first of all, I'm saying the Holy Spirit, God wants to give you his spirit so that you can understand the word of God. Secondly, God wants to give you his spirit so that you understand the mind and the heart of God and, uh, and have revelation into the things of God and know what God is speaking to you excuse me, know what God is speaking to you day by day in your life, and you know the leading of the Spirit. And the goal of both of these kinds of understanding is that you grow deeper into the intimate knowledge of God. And when you get into the intimate knowledge of God, it gives you three things. The hope of His calling, the wealth of His inheritance in the saints, and the greatness of His power. Now, the first is the hope of His calling. In the pagan culture of the day when Paul was writing hope, the word hope meant a fantasy which removes you from the reality of troubles that you're facing. That's what the meaning of the word hope was. Doesn't sound very hopeful, does it? It was having a dream or a fantasy which removes you momentarily from the reality of the troubles we're facing. We live in a culture which is seeking that kind of hope. They're living in a fantasy. They'll do anything they can. People will do anything they can to remove them from the reality of the troubles we're facing. But that's not what hope means in the Bible. Hope is an unshakable trust in an utterly reliable God that in spite of the troubles we're facing, He's working through them to bring about a greater goal. And we can hold on to him because we know he's holding on to us. That's hope. That's real hope. It's not a fantasy. Biblical hope is not a fantasy. It is a, a solid gold reality that God is working things out in our life no matter what's going on on the outside. He meets us, 2 Corinthians 1 says, 
in the afflictions. I wish God would meet me outside of afflictions and save me from afflictions, and I'd never have a moment of trouble in this life. That's my fleshly nature. But that's not the fallen world that we live in. Given that we live in a fallen world and that we're going to have afflictions, I'm so glad that God meets me in them. Because my God is greater than the troubles that I face. And that's my hope. I have a hope. You know, the hope implies that it's something that you're hoping for. You haven't got it yet. I always say, keep your eye on the horizon. Don't run the roller coaster the day and day up and down because God is faithful and in the end He'll meet you. But it's the Holy Spirit in the knowledge of God when God draws us by His Spirit into a deeper experiential knowledge He gives us this kind of hope in our life that will get you through. And secondly, the knowledge of God involves the wealth of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Now notice, it's His inheritance. It's not our inheritance He speaks of. It's His inheritance. What is God's inheritance? What did God inherit? Us. <laughs> I don't know. You, you, you know, uh, sometimes God might look around and say, I'm not so sure about this inheritance. But the Bible has a higher view of who we are than we do. It says we are God's inheritance. Of course, you only get an inheritance when a death has occurred. The death was God's son. God gave his son to die so that he could inherit us. He gave his son away so that we, he could have us. That's the value. The Bible says He's adopted us. We're of such enormous value that God paid for His own inheritance with the blood of His Son. And we need the Holy Spirit, because He's talking about the Holy Spirit in this passage. We need the Holy Spirit to remind us, <coughs> excuse me, every day of the value God puts on the saints. Notice it's saints in the plural. What's that? It's the church. Who's the church? It's us. <coughs> because when the New Testament talks about the church, it's always the local church. Don't, don't, don't tell me, oh, I'm part of the universal church and Jesus is my pastor. That's totally unbiblical. You're part of a local church under shepherds and elders that God has put over you. If you're not, you're not in church. Sorry. You're not in church. You're in a delusion. The inheritance comes here, <clears throat> right here at Firm Foundation Ministries, right here in this congregation. Together, corporately, we are the inheritance of God. We're not just a bunch of individuals, it's together as a family, we are the inheritance of God. Folks, <clears throat> we need to stop seeing church as a human institution. I will. We need to, <laughs> I always obey the preacher. We need to stop seeing church as a human institution and start seeing it as a divine creation. Where we run into problems and where we run into a, a critical spirit in church is when we look at the church as a human institution. Okay? If you look at it as a human institution, 
You can look at the pastor. You can look at the elders. You can pick out whatever faults they've got. You can look at the way things are done and have a critical spirit. And God says, wait a minute. That's my inheritance you're talking about. That's my bride you're talking about. You know, if somebody behind your back insulted your wife, uh, you wouldn't be too happy about that, gentlemen, I hope. You take action. Well, God isn't too happy when people speak negatively of his bride. And I'm not saying, you, you, you know, there's always problems in church. And if you ever find the perfect church, you'll wreck it the minute you walk in the door. Because we're all imperfect people. But this is God's inheritance. We need a shift in revelation by the Holy Spirit to see the church as a divine creation. If I'm a new creation in Christ, which the Bible says, and you're a new creation in Christ, when the Bible says, then the church, being you and me, is also a new creation in Christ. The church, church is not some abstract idea. Church is concrete. It's reality. It's right in front of us. It's the brothers and sisters sitting beside you and behind you and in front of you. That's church. Now listen. Just because you're imperfect and fail from time to time, do you count your life as a Christian as garbage? No, you don't. Then why do so many professing believers count the church as garbage just because there's other imperfect people like them in it? Stop it. Don't do it. I'm not preaching to myself, too. Don't mess with the bride of Christ. If you walk away from church, you are despising the inheritance that Jesus Christ bought and paid for with his own blood. The next time you're critical about something, think about that. Just think about it. The wealth of his inheritance in the saints. i got to get through this. The deeper knowledge of God that he leads us into by his Holy Spirit involves three things. The hope of his calling, that's certain and sure, it's not a fantasy. The wealth of his inheritance in the saints. You are so privileged and blessed to be here in this church. It's a privilege. It's a blessing. You, how do people live outside of church? No. I mean, I, I, I don't know how they do. When you're in church, it's, man, anyway. And thirdly, the greatness of his power. This is what God has done for us. He's given us the greatness of his power. And in one verse, which is verse 19, he uses four words for power in one verse. And I don't have time to go into them, but I'll just list them. The first one is dunamis. It means unlimited power. The second is energia. It means supernatural power. The third is kratos. It's the power to gain victory in war. And the fourth is iskus, which is pure, raw strength used of Samson in the Old Testament. And so he says, he says here in verse 19, he says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? If I expanded that a little bit, 
I could say this. He, what God gives us by His Spirit is the immeasurable greatness of His unlimited ability toward us who believe according to the supernatural power of the warring triumph of His raw strength. Well, you look in the mirror in the morning, the Holy Spirit is producing that in you. The immeasurable greatness of His unlimited ability according to the supernatural power of the warring triumph of His raw strength. That should be an encouragement because God is unleashing that in His church. How important it is to know the power of God. We have lived in a rationalistic society for 300 years. We have been taught the supernatural doesn't exist. But we need to fight back. And the good news is we've got God's power to fight back with. Now what's the purpose of all this? The power, Paul says, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, verse 20, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things in all. Although it is impossible to measure the power of God, it is possible to describe its practical effect which is demonstrated by the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead and exalting him to the right hand of God. The question is, why did God raise Jesus from the dead and exalt him to his right hand? The reason is to make him head over all things for the church. Now think about it for a minute. Christ had already been exalted at the right hand of God. He had already been above all rule and authority from all eternity past. But his coming to this earth and his death and his resurrection took place for only one reason. That henceforth he would be exalted as head over the church. That's what he wasn't before. All of this is done by God so that Jesus would be head over the church. He was already in eternity, exalted as the second person of the Trinity. He reasoned, he came to this earth and died and was raised and exalted back to the right hand of the Father was for this one reason. So that he could be the one thing he wasn't before, which was head over the church. Christ did not die for a group of random individuals. He did not even die for a worldwide group of random individuals. He died for his church. If we make salvation all about me and put myself at the center, if I hold a consumer mentality toward church, if I look on church as something I hold a membership in, like a gym or a golf club, if I go from one church to another, depending on how it meets my needs or suits my fancy, I am making mockery of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. few verses later, when he comes to the end of chapter 2, he brings his argument to a climax. He says, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
built in the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being dwelt, built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. That's really the title of this talk. It's the dwelling place of God. What is the dwelling place of God? It's the church. Notice that when Paul says all these things, you're no longer strangers, you're fellow citizens, uh, and so on. He's talking in the plural. He's speaking to the church. He's describing us together as a holy temple in the Lord, together as a dwelling place for God. We, we talk about the Holy Spirit indwelling uh, ourselves, our bodies, our, being a temple of the Spirit, but we are God's temple, together, corporately. And uh, the, it's, Christ is the cornerstone of that. Um, the cornerstone in ancient times where there was no mortar to hold the stones together. They had to be carefully shaped to fit with one another. You can go to England today and they still build walls that way. The cornerstone, everything has to be in perfect alignment with that or else the whole building will fall down. See, we are who we are, not just in our personal relationship with the Lord, but in how He has placed us in His church. We're being built together into a house all as living stones built together, fashioned so carefully together so that the whole building coheres and, and does not fall down. You may not like who God has stuck in beside you or behind you or above you or below you, but God has ordained it. It shouldn't be any surprise that Jesus said, in, in John's gospel, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Just as God breathed into Adam and made him his first creation, Jesus breathed into his disciples and made them the first fruits of his new creation. The physical temple is gone, but it's replaced by the temple that the Apostle Paul is talking about here in these verses I've read. It's the dwelling place of God. It was present in the garden, in perfection. We lost it, but it's been restored in Christ. It is the church. And what is present in this temple, in its human imperfection, but in its divine indwelling, one day will come to glorious fulfillment in the temple of the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, described in the last two verses, chapters of the Bible. But for now, God has only one dwelling place. It's not in the odd individual out there that's not going to church and watches an evangelist on TV or does their own thing. No, God has only one dwelling place. It's here in church. The church is the only instrument that God has to reach this world with the gospel. That's why God's so jealous of His church and is so displeased when people mess around with it. Now, folks, we live in days of disillusionment. And the disillusionment is always birthed out of the fact we foolishly believed in one illusion or another. And for us as Christians... 
That illusion can come in the idea that church is just a provision to have all your needs met. Church is some, is the ultimate goal of church is just to make you feel good. You may have the delusion that salvation is just personal, that you can treat the church like a shopping mall. You can go from store to store till you find one that suits your taste. The church is just another human institution that is not all that important to God. Those are illusions. But they're not only illusions, they're something worse. They're lies. They're lies. Because the truth is, the church is the dwelling place of God on earth. I'm just about done. The church is not your house. It's his house. To be in church is an incredible privilege. You're not doing God a favor. You're not doing the pastor or the elders a favor by being here this morning or by presenting your tithe or half a tithe or quarter of a tithe or whatever it is that you are thinking you're bestowing as a favor. No. It is a privilege for you to be here. It's a privilege for you to... It's a privilege for you to give your full tithe. That's a privilege. It's a blessing. And it's a responsibility. If the church is God's only instrument to extend the kingdom, then we need to get rid of the delusions we've held about it, and we need to get back to the kind of vision here in the first two chapters of Ephesians that the Apostle Paul gives us. Jesus was sent into this world to suffer and die so that he could be head over the church, which is us. Yes, that means you individually are saved, but that's only the beginning of it. And if that's all you see, you haven't seen it. But to get there for you and me, we need exactly what Paul said, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. We need correct understanding of the Word of God, and we need a supernatural encounter with the Spirit of God. I could put it this way. We need to fall in love with God's church again. We need to fall in love with God's church again. If you're a little bit jaded this morning, a little bit critical, a little bit, you know, uh, your expectations haven't been met or whatever the case may be, you need to fall in love again with God's church. And you won't fall in love with God's church by looking at the people around you. You'll fall in love with God's church by looking at the head of the church. And when you see what Jesus has done to make this here possible this morning at Firm Foundation Ministries in Centerville, Michigan, when you see what Jesus did to make this possible, you will fall in love with God's church. And if you want to live in the presence of God, just remember this. You have to be in God's house. You have to be in His dwelling. It's not a perfect house. You're not perfect, neither am I. But it's the only house God has on offer. I love His church. I hope you do too.
Let's stand together as the worship team comes back. And as you stand, I invite you to take a moment to say two things. Jesus, deliver me from any critical spirit I've had and give me your spirit so that I can fall in love with your church again. Now, Holy Spirit, just come and help us. Come and help us, please, this morning. We want to... We want to be excited because we have a vision of that immeasurable power, the raw strength of unlimited power which you have deposited in this house, in this family, in this church, and in us individually. We thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy this morning in the mighty name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Come on, let's give the Lord another hand. Maybe in your life you've been I don't know, maybe like me, you've been stirred from, for more of a reality of what we've always dreamt that the local church would look like. And I feel that in the modern day world, in order for mainstream religion to try and compete, the local church is moving further and further away from the word of God and the things that empower the church to be who we're called to be. And, and I'm finding that as the modern day aspect of the church does that, that they're experiencing less and less of the power of God. But I don't know about you, but I live every day in the need of the power of the Lord. Amen. And I understand that, man, I wasn't raised in church. And there was a local church when we got saved who loved us in the middle of all our mess. Who demonstrated the power of God through the unity of the body of believers. And I think if you're like me, who's been, man, God, give us a reality of what church family, faith family, what the body of Christ should look like in reality in the local setting. God is answering our prayers. Amen. And... If God is moving you in a place where, you know, those have refused to embrace the biblical idea of the Word of God in the local church, He's placing us into a place that is embracing that. Somebody say amen. And we're seeing the power of God to heal, deliver, set free, to do things that only God can do so that only God gets the glory so that we are known as God's inheritance. I love that statement David said. That the Bible talks more highly about us than we do ourselves. Because we are the body of Christ. We're the bride, the church. And there is no plan B to take the gospel to the world. It's the body of Christ. Amen? We are the vehicle that takes the message of the love of God to a lost and dying world. I want you to be excited that you belong to a place that's committed not only to the Word of God, but the moving of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's not it. Amen. Holy Spirit is person, living, dwelling among us, moving among us as God in our midst. 
doing what only God can do. I thank God for a word that inspires me to love the church more. I thank God that uh, God for a word that inspires me uh, not to be satisfied with less than. So, Father, in this place, we love you. Thank you for the word today that encourages us, God.